I remember learning very quickly that the way that one dealt with the energy slump mid-morning, which would inevitably come if you had half an hour's sleep, and the cumulative effect of, as well of this unhealthy life, was to take advantage of the sandwich man who came in at 11 o'clock. And yeah, the, the holy trinity of fizzy drink, a packet of chips, and a bar of chocolate or a BLT sandwich and one of the other things that I mentioned as a way of lifting you up and keeping you going until the morning. So it was almost like a theater. And there were these steps that one had to move through and it was like belonging to a club. And the people who hadn't been drinking wouldn't need that. Uh, but those of us, we'd give each other the, the smile, a secret smile as we mm -hmm. did that walk towards the kitchen and back. Yeah, it was a real sense of belonging. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober Podcast, episode 203. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last eight years, we've helped thousands of people to do just that. And we created Tribe Sober because we know from experience that it's really hard to change your drinking habits alone. Social norms are so powerful and that's why you need to find a new tribe for this life-changing journey. Because your family tribe will just tell you to cut down and your drinking buddy tribe will tell you not to be so boring. Whereas Tribe Sober will connect you with other people on the same path. Other people who will encourage and support you. Other people who understand the struggle. Other people who've been just where you are now. So at Tribe Sober we're all about community. It's a community where everyone strives for an alcohol-free lifestyle and many of our members are already thriving in their sobriety and inspiring others. Each week we feature a community voice, just to give you a flavour of the awesomeness of our tribe. I'd watched my family getting more and more distant and I thought, you know, at some stage I'm either going to end up in rehab or I'm going to get an ultimatum. So I'm okay to carry on as I am because that will be my stopping point when yes. either of those comes along. I slowly realized that, that the ultimatum wasn't going to come, and that kind of shifted me into a space of being able to take ownership because I was watching my husband and my kids slowly drift away. So if you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, 
just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. Thank you to everyone that came to the boot camp and particularly to those that took it to the next stage and signed up for Breaking Free. In fact, Breaking Free kicks off this afternoon at 1.30 South African time with a four-hour group workshop. We've still got a couple of places to offer, so if you're interested, get in touch immediately, Janet at tribesober.com, and we'll be happy to take you on our three-month life-changing journey. This week, I've been chairing a group discussion on a fascinating subject, which is corporate drinking. I have three guests, and they are Isabella Ferguson, former litigation lawyer turned counsellor and coach specialising in stress, burnout and alcohol. Catherine is a former PR and media professional, now running her own coaching business, focusing on coaching high-performing individuals with problematic alcohol relationships. And last but not least, we have Nikki, who's a former corporate worker in London, now a certified life and leadership coach, incorporating mindfulness into her coaching, particularly addressing alcohol addiction. So I began our conversation by asking them all to introduce themselves. So welcome, guys. Welcome. And thank you so much for your time today, this morning in South Africa, this evening in Australia, isn't it? I think this is a very interesting topic and one that is changing so quickly. And I'm very excited about the changes. As someone that used to work in corporates, the thought of not drinking in all of the corporates where I worked, it would have made you such an outsider. So I was in with the in crowd and drinking my head off. We all know where that ended up. <laughs> so let's let's just hear from each of you, please. Can we start with you, Isabella? Just tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, sure. And Janet, thank you for hosting this podcast. I think it's so timely and such an important chat. So yes, Isabella Ferguson's my name. I like to say I'm a recovered lawyer. I was litigation lawyer for 20 years and I'm now a counsellor and coach specialising in stress, burnout and alcohol. Fantastic. Thanks. So let's go to your colleague and friend in Australia, Catherine. Thanks, Janet. It's beautiful to be here again discussing, I think, an incredibly important topic and one that I am very passionate about. My previous work history was in the PR and media and advertising industries where there was, in my opinion, a really excessive drinking culture. I now run my own coaching business, the Alcohol Mindset Coach, and specialise in coaching high-functioning men and women who are generally working in fairly high-performing roles but who know that their relationship with alcohol is holding them back in their life. And they've also realised that alcohol has been enabled and encouraged in their workplace. So thank you so much for having us. And I'm really looking forward to discussing this topic further. 
Thank you, Catherine. And some of our listeners will know your voice well, because the first episode I did with you on binge drinking is our most popular podcast ever with 3,300 downloads. So Mm. Catherine's a bit of a star. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Janet. (laughs) And I think binge drinking as well in the title, it's a bit of a key word. I think so many of us have Googled, oh, binge drinking. How does it work? Why do I keep doing this? Because we don't realize we don't have an off switch once we get to a certain stage, do we? Nikki in South Africa. Thank you, Janet. It's wonderful to be here with these esteemed women, all with such beautiful smiles. It really strikes me. (laughs) I am based in South Africa. My Background is corporate in London, in Carnaby Street, in Soho. Very work hard, play hard. Moved to nonprofit, less of a drinking culture, but still there. And I moved into coaching about five years ago now, where I'm combining my corporate and nonprofit experience with my training as a yoga teacher. So I'm a certified life and leadership coach, but I work a lot with mindfulness and mindfulness as a way of making sense of the world and reaching our full potential. I run my own small business and I work a lot with corporates and with leadership, with exco teams, with C-suite professionals. So alcohol isn't an area that I specifically deal with, but because I'm very open about my own struggle with addiction and I'm tremendously proud of my 10 years of sobriety, so people tend to find their way towards me and often this is the subject, the goal of the coaching interventions that I do is around finding a more healthy relationship with alcohol. Fantastic, fantastic. Thank you for that, guys. So before we dive into what you're doing now, let's cast our minds back to those corporate drinking days. You made me smile, Nikki, when you said Carnaby Street, because I was also in the London work hard, play hard scene for 30 years, I think. And rather than pick out an isolated incident myself, I can just remember that, that feeling that everything was about relaxing with the colleagues and drinking afterwards and also during I was an HR director so it was part of my job to take out our star employees for lunch now and again and make sure that they were happy and motivated and they didn't have any grievances and of course that would involve a nice restaurant and a good bottle of wine. I even remember in my 20s when I worked in the BBC and I didn't used to drink much with the colleagues there. I was trying to behave myself. I was still a drinker socially. But one of my bosses actually called me to one side and he said, we don't see you in the BBC club very often, Janet. You know, that's really the place you should go at least once or twice a week. You need to network. It was almost a directive from my boss. And that's how prevalent the culture was way back there. It just went through my career like that. I remember these sessions with my colleagues 
And the next morning, we'd all be a bit fragile, as we used to call it. And it was almost like a badge of honour, that hangover. And the people who hadn't been there because they didn't drink, perhaps, I'm sure they felt a bit left out because it was the thing to do. So that's a little memory of my work hard, play hard days. I just wondered if uh, any of you guys would like to volunteer how you felt back in those days and the pressure. Yeah, for sure, Janet. I can echo those sentiments in uh, the workplace that I was at. Uh, Litigation lawyers, being part of that sort of workplace, it traverses both your billables and working hard, and then it moves into playing hard and socialising hard, debriefing, networking, marketing. And yeah, I can remember you start quite young. So your colleagues also become part of your family and your social circle. And alcohol is the substance that allows you to do the heavy lifting from the workplace into the social debriefing scene and marketing scene, and then having to do it all over again the next morning. Yes, alcohol was in the fridge to let you stay longer at night. Then it was at home when you needed to do the hard yards to pump out an advice into the late hours. And alcohol was just promoted at every juncture in the firm. And there was never really any knowledge or training around what might be an acceptable use for your health or not. I was certainly a big drinker in my youth at university. I certainly carried it through into the workplace. And I don't think it's any surprise, but I certainly gravitated towards the culture in a firm that had like-minded big drinkers as well. So we did everything together, marketed together, And yeah, look, when you leave, you can really come crashing down because you're left on your own devices then at home with this habit. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. You said something so true there, Isabella, that when we're young in our 20s back then, I had no idea how harmful alcohol was. In fact, in my 20s, we used to smoke because... (laughs) It wasn't even in the public domain that alcohol, that cigarettes gave you lung cancer back then because cigarettes were still advertised everywhere. We'd see doctors in white coats on the TVs recommending cigarette brands. It was crazy. Once they banned the cigarette advertising in the UK, it was suddenly in the public domain that cigarettes gave you lung cancer. So we were all looking at each other going, wow, did you hear that? And we all stopped smoking overnight because we didn't want to get lung cancer. I think alcohol is heading for a cigarette moment. It's probably a long way away still, but it's definitely heading there. More and more people realise it's linked to seven types of cancer, more than 60 diseases. The word is out there. And that's why I love the work that we do, because we're spreading that word. And gradually, more and more people will will get smart. (laughs) Nikki, any thoughts? Let's hear about this Carnaby Street office. (laughs) Oh, boy. It started in Wimbledon, actually, where I was placed by a temping agency as a fresh off-the-boat South African graduate working at a reception desk in this global staffing company. And I guess that through my life up to that point, I felt less than these high-flying recruitment consultants who wore the sharpest suits and were earning 
ridiculous money straight out of university. And I'd see them as they walked out of the sales floor and to the bathroom and back. And I had the sense of admiration for what they've done. And I had the sense of almost embarrassment at where I was starting off. And I got asked to stay from the temping job and eventually moved into the sales floor where I was doing internal recruitment for a bunch of recruitment companies or staffing companies across Europe. So I was recruiting these future recruitment consultants. And our directive was to look for a bunch of criteria that would make them excellent at what they do, including the ability to work hard and play hard. It was the first time I'd heard this saying, this mantra, and I needed to press them for examples of when they had worked hard and played hard. So they actually needed to demonstrate that they knew how to do this. And it became the, the accepted way of doing things for me as well. It definitely was a way for me to fit in, going down to the local pub after work. And it was a place where I felt that I could show my personality and actually, yeah, get to know people instead of just being on the phone or sitting face to face with interviewers. That was the most intense work hard, play hard culture I've ever been in. To the extent that the high performers, the highest performers, and myself and my two colleagues, because we were recruiting them and bringing them into the companies, we'd get flown to Nice for lunch, or we'd get flown to Reykjavik for a weekend. This is the reward. All expenses paid, always the director's credit card behind the bar. And everyone would get paralytic. And all sorts of questionable things would go on, including with the directors. And I remember looking at this and just going, this must be how they do things here. I remember we had a Friday lunch club where we would go to the top restaurants in London, the kind of restaurants, you'll know, Janet, like the Ivy, where you usually wait for months for a reservation. And it reached the point where I could manage my booze so well that I would appear to be completely in charge or in control, but I wouldn't be able to remember a thing that I ate. And I remember thinking, this is such a waste. When I moved to Carnaby Street, I moved into a more, I want to say professional, but it was, the previous company was professional as well, but the culture was less of that expected work hard, play hard. But by then I had internalized it yeah. and I would always be able to find someone who would be willing to go down to the pub and inevitably a few drinks after work would turn into karaoke at three o'clock in the morning and a cab home blowing all the money I'd made that day and also the friends that I'd made at the first company we almost had this little secret club where with each other we could meet up and drink in the way we used to drink yeah and normalize it. Yeah. It was brutal to watch how I was doing this behavior that was leading to my own anxiety, low self-esteem, debt, 
And I just kept doing it. So yeah, happy memories and absolutely traumatic memories of being caught up in a a cycle that I just couldn't break and didn't want to break. That's the thing. I remember thinking that I was really living the life, working hard, playing hard, had everything, everything sorted, little did I know. I love your example of how, as a recruiter, you were looking for people, you looking for evidence that people could work hard, play hard, because then they would fit in the culture. But what a culture. And that's what we're we're trying to change, aren't we? Catherine, any examples for us of your work days? Partying. Yeah, it's interesting reflecting back now and thinking of the mentality of who I was then and what my approach was. And honestly, I saw my drinking prowess as something to be very proud of and that I could use it to my advantage in work situations, particularly with male colleagues. And not that it was anything sexual or anything like that, but more that I could get brownie points because of my drinking, because I could stay out late, because I could keep up. So I used to look forward to the opportunity to be in those situations because I thought they're going to see how good a drinker I am. Mm -hmm. And I felt like part of a club as well. It felt like In a way, I had something up on a lot of the other women because there weren't as many there who could drink like I could. And so I used it to my advantage, but then there were also some moments where I would just feel so guilty about my drinking and the impact that it was having on my own self-esteem. It never really affected my workplace relationships. No one really knew that I wasn't high functioning because I would turn up to work after being out till five o'clock in the morning. I could get up after half an hour's sleep and still go to work and still function to a level that was okay. And I think that was actually a real problem as well for me because I didn't get all those red flags or warnings or anything like that. I was able to fly under the radar. And again, it was a badge of honour for me to actually be the only one who went to work the next day when other people were taking sick days. Of course, I proved to myself that I don't really have a problem because I can go to work. And this was the mentality of my binge drinking for all the years was how do I prove to myself that I don't have a problem? And it would be these little markers, making sure that I always went to work or that I exercised really hard um, if I'd had a big night. And thinking back to that young woman going through all of that, I, I feel so much compassion now because I can see how punishing and harsh I was being on myself. Really, there is quite an issue in terms of women starting to drink back when we were at work. It was about keeping up with the male groups. It was trying to get 
approval in the workplace. Unfortunately, for many, it it really caused a lot of issues. And I think it's so great now that we are starting to see workplace corporates take more of a lead in the role that alcohol plays. There's not enough happening yet, but I think we're on the tip of the iceberg and we're about to see something really uh, exciting happen. Thanks for that, Catherine. Your example of having half an hour of sleep and going to work. I can't remember having a day off work because of a hangover. I do remember going to the bathroom to vomit quite often in the morning because I felt so ill. The British stiff upper lip, we say, I'm fine. And we managed to convince ourselves. But it strikes me now, looking back for all of us, how much energy that took to keep the show on the road because some of us, we had families at home as well. We had to keep that going. We had to keep the job going. And it took so much energy to pretend and to pretend to ourselves that everything was fine. And for me, that's one of the many joys of sobriety. We get to use that energy for something positive, like the work that we're all doing. We were warriors. <laughs> we were drunk warriors and now we're sober warriors. <laughs> Janet, hearing you talk about energy, I remember learning very quickly that the way that one dealt with the energy slump mid-morning, which would inevitably come if you had half an hour's sleep, and the cumulative effect as, as well of this unhealthy life, was to take advantage of the sandwich man who came in at 11 o'clock. And I think I mentioned this to you when we were having our podcast, yeah, the, the holy trinity of a fizzy drink, a packet of chips, and a bar of chocolate, or a BLT sandwich, and one of the other things that I mentioned, as a way of lifting you up and keeping you going until the morning. So it was almost like a theater. And there were these steps that one had to move through, and it was like belonging to a club. And the people who hadn't been drinking wouldn't need that. Uh, but those of us, we'd give each other the, the smile, a secret smile, as we mm -hmm. did that walk towards the kitchen and back. Yeah, it was a real sense of belonging and of comfort in knowing what to do and how to fit into this club. Yeah, I, I love your story about the Holy Trinity. <laughs> I remember <laughs> it from the podcast. In fact, you've all done a podcast with me yet about your personal stories, which, of course, I'll put a link to in the show notes for anyone that hasn't heard your personal stories. But you've all got a very good period of sobriety under your belts now. And all three of you, interestingly, are helping workplaces understand that this culture shouldn't be imposed on people, that a non-drinker should feel as comfortable and as part of the scene, part of the gang, as a, a hectic drinker. So let, let's talk about that, shall we? I know that Isabella and Catherine, you're working together, aren't you, on this 30-day workplace wellness challenge, which sounds amazing. So talk to us about that. It is very exciting. Isabella and I have had many discussions about how we can really start to make an impact in Australian culture. And given Australian culture, there is such an issue with excessive drinking. It's so normalised. 
And one of the areas that we both really believe there is a lot of work to do is in corporate, in workplace wellness programs, where often there has been a focus on mindfulness, meditation, but that the actual role of alcohol and drinking really hasn't been taken care of in any shape or form, apart from maybe a dry July challenge. Most people don't even know that alcohol impacts the quality of sleep that you have every night. And so the premise behind our workplace wellness challenge is really about generating awareness and providing with new knowledge and information, getting people to think about the role that alcohol plays in their life and getting them to try some new things so that they might see that actually I didn't realize alcohol was impacting my sleep during the week, but when I have a few alcohol-free days, I realize how much better I'm sleeping. So the program is really there to be accessible for everyone. It's not a quit drinking program. It's a program to invite curiosity about your alcohol use, drinking, what you may or may not know about alcohol, and to disrupt and try some new things. Have you got anything you want to add about that, Isabella? Yeah, I'd love to add that just on the the presentations that we've done on behalf of the Law Society of New South Wales or the Bar Association in law firms, these style of talks actually work. When it's particularly couched in that positive, mindful health and wellness title, it piques people's interest. They don't feel like they've got a problem if they come along and they're there to get healthy. And the talks that you do when they go into topics like the connection between burnout and alcohol, stress and burnout, people really resonate. They don't know that alcohol fuels those symptoms and they want to learn more. And it actually does work to shift their mindset. And the the reason why I love this work is because we are losing senior staff, really experienced, highly valued staff in their mid-40s. They're the ones that set the culture. They've got the corporate experience. But suddenly after these decades of drinking where they've given everything to the firms and alcohol's been there to cope, they're leaving. I think there's such a duty of care here for these firms because they create the stress, they attract the employees who by their very nature, are quite perfectionistic, might be anxious, depressed. They supply the alcohol and it's part of the KPIs, not just to work hard, but to socialise and network. And then they sit back and they wonder, why is there always a high percentage of our staff that we're losing to problematic drinking? And we're losing them under the guise of burnout and stress, but there's always that alcohol underbelly in many of those people. I do think there is a duty of care there for corporates to really step in and look at programs like Sip Smart to provide some of that personalised help. Yeah, that, that's wonderful, ladies. I love the way you've positioned it. I think that is absolutely mm-hmm. get curious, think about your health. Such a good point you made about when you get into your 40s and 50s as an executive in a corporate, you've got so many skills and so much experience. Yet if you're a drinker, that's when it's really catching up with you because the science seems to say that 20 years of 
regular social drinking, 20% of us will develop a dependence. So that's an awful lot of senior executives walking around with an alcohol dependence, isn't it? And the health issues really catch up. I had breast cancer in my 50s, still working. So yeah, such great points. So Nikki, talk to us a bit about your corporate work here in South Africa. I don't specifically go in with message about alcohol. So mindfulness is almost like my Trojan horse. Yes. Because I loved what Isabella said there about curiosity. Mindfulness as a practice is all about curiosity and observing without judging. And when we start observing without judging, we start to recognize our own humanness. And how this can shift things is to recognize that we aren't failing if we are struggling with the pressure. Very often, especially if we come from a work hard, play hard culture, and we look at the people who can do it, like you, Janet, (laughs) and we go, gosh, if she can do it and I can't, I probably should try harder. And if we try harder, we're going to tip the balance even more and start getting ourselves more and more into trouble. When we start looking at ourselves with curiosity and with compassion, we can start to see that what we're trying to do is support ourselves. It's a desperate attempt to support ourselves. And Catherine, when you're talking about looking at that young woman with compassion, that's such a lovely shift that instead of looking at ourselves with shame, embarrassment, disgrace, judgment, we can start to see that what we're trying to do was hope. And as one becomes more and more mindful, we can start to see what we might want to change about ourselves or what's holding us back. And that's usually the point at which people come to me. I loved what Isabella was saying about a duty of care of the organizations. I love the shift that I'm seeing that as people become more mindful, they're starting to recognize that there is a responsibility of the organization as well. Yes, they need to show up and take responsibility for themselves and the bad choices that they might be making. But there's also a sense of, hold on, if I'm feeling so stressed and so overworked that the only way that I feel I can cope to live another day is to numb myself completely, there's something wrong here. So it's not playing victim but it's starting to recognize that there is a dual responsibility of the organization as well as for the individual. So it's a secret squirrel approach of going in. And because I work a lot with leaders, it's also just about shining a light on dysfunctional patterns and creating a safe space where conversations can potentially start because in my experience the moment I bring up alcohol or think about bringing up alcohol even when I take corporates on retreats and I say there will be no alcohol I'm immediately viewed with a side eye and much suspicion 
yeah, for me, it's a very softly catchy monkey situation because a dependence on alcohol for me is just a symptom of so much else. Yeah. It's so true what you're saying about we might be completely burnt out because we've been given too much work to do for the last decade, but we drink to numb that feeling. Because when we're a drinker, we disconnect with ourselves, don't we? We don't really know what's going on with ourselves. We've had so many lawyers in Tribe Sober, (laughs) and I think they're pretty renowned for that. We had a new member recently, and she was telling me about these all-night sessions on mergers and acquisitions, and that's just not acceptable to make people work through the night. I remember another lawyer that I was coaching who was in London, actually, and he would work these crazy hours all week, but there was a moratorium on the weekend. They didn't work weekends. He would spend his weekend alone in his beautiful apartment in the city, because obviously he was paid zillions, and he would just drink vodka on his own all weekend, and then Monday back to the grindstone. What kind of life is Mm -hmm. that? So yeah, these law companies have got a big duty of care that they need to look at, as do many corporates. So what we're talking about here really is a culture change, isn't it? And I was wondering if any of you have ideas about the kind of specific alcohol policies that corporates should think about introducing. I'll hop in here, Janet. Look, I think it's really interesting having coached many sort of men who are in quite high roles in different industries, how I will ask them whether there is any policy around alcohol, behaviour around alcohol, serving of alcohol, and the answer is often no. So that there is no understanding of what is expected in a workplace or the requirements in terms of are you allowed to drink at work lunches? Are you allowed to drink after you've left work? If you're going to a work function, there there are so many different options to look at in terms of alcohol use in a workplace. Are you allowed to continue drinking at work when the fridge is still open if it's two o'clock in the morning? So I think these are things to look at to have very strict guidelines around what is acceptable and what isn't. The other thing that I think is really interesting is the giving of alcohol as gifts. This is something that should be looked at because the receiver may have an issue with alcohol and it shouldn't just be something that's given. If you're a corporate, there should be some sort of policy around it. Given alcohol is a drug. These are things to start off with, but it's also thinking about an inclusive and diverse workplace and how we know here in Australia that there are definitely changes in terms of our drinking culture in the younger generation. There are a lot more people who are sober curious, who are choosing not to drink for periods of time, who will go to work functions and choose not to drink. And so we need to make sure we're catering for a diverse range of needs. Often for me, I've had to try and find a mineral water around the corner because everything that is being served on trays is alcoholic. So it's also thinking about the work environment and making sure that you've got a whole lot of 
interesting non-alcoholic options as well. So these are just a few things to start off with. Having actually a policy around alcohol use in a workplace, you would think given sexual harassment and a lot of cases of sexual harassment, I think it's over 50%, there is some use of alcohol involved. It would seem obvious that you would have an alcohol policy, but the majority of businesses don't. Yeah, because most companies, I believe, do have policies about bullying and sexual harassment, but I haven't found an alcohol related one yet and yeah those gifts that's classic in recruitment I remember it particularly Christmas wow our whole office was bottles of booze crates of wine and scotch Mm. it was just so accepted accepted amazing so yeah such a scope any ideas from you Isabella or Nikki on policies apart from Catherine's idea Yeah, yeah. Look, I think culture is the word. I think it's all very well and really good to have great alcohol-free drinks, but there has to be a a culture from the leadership down which actually views abstaining or drinking mindfully positively. Uh, A client recently said to me that He was at a a Christmas workplace function and overheard senior partners saying, in my view, if you're going alcohol-free at a work function, you must have a problem. And another client saying that she was appalled that she had to have her work meeting in a pub where beers were free-flowing. And Kat's right, the younger generation, they don't want to drink like us baby burners or Gen Xs, and they don't want to spend their personal time hungover because they've been drinking at work. Look, culture's a multifaceted thing. It's hard to define. It's hard to change positively. But I think everything that Kath said was essential and spot on. I also think getting people like us into firms to give really positive, mindful chats about the connection between stress and alcohol being and just your sense of self-trust and confidence really works. I've had such good positive feedback. Running these 30-day challenges like Sip Smart in a positive way that can be underpinned with FebFast or Dry July make it a charitable funding exercise, but it's food for thought and it's setting the the tone, leadership education around what does drinking look like in your micro team? Because the firms know, they know who are the big drinking ones that stay out till five o'clock in the morning. They move as a pod, as a herd. And I think there needs to be a difference between showing how to be inclusive versus let's just rip into it and get smashed approach, which really is still quite ingrained in our workplace culture. So battling it on all fronts. But, yeah, it's a win for firms. It it keeps employees there, presenteeism, cuts down absenteeism. And I'm exciting for all of this to start changing in this space. Yeah, and and what's great about your challenges is that it'll start to enter the corporate dialogue. People will say, are you doing that challenge thing? That's a bit crazy. And then they'll think, I just found out because presumably you give them info to go with the challenge. 
So they'll say, we don't sleep properly if we're drinking. And they'll start talking about it. And then people will be able to ditch the shame a bit. They'll say, maybe I was drinking a bit too much, but I want to improve my sleep and my health. So I'm going to have a go at this. Or they'll say, I did that challenge thing and I feel amazing. I'm going to carry on being alcohol free. So it's got a huge scope. I love that. And I think one of the other really positive sort of reframes here is that people don't realize that they have access to another 20 or 30 percent of themselves productivity wise creativity wise energy wise so if you're someone who's professionally ambitious really wanting to get ahead in your career there's an opportunity to look at your relationship with alcohol whether you believe you have a problem or not and ask yourself are there changes that I can make that is going to give me extra time and space and energy in my life that is going to enable me to perform better, to get that promotion, to start that business that I've been dreaming about starting? That is what, again, I've found with some of my clients. I had a client who specifically came to change his relationship with alcohol because he wanted to leave a job in investment banking to start his own business. He said, I cannot possibly trust myself to do that whilst I'm drinking. Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet at tribesober.com. That's Janet, J-A-N-E-T, at tribesober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. That reminds me of when I ran workshops physically, uh, we would start off people sitting in a circle and they'd say why they were here. And most people were saying, oh, I'm worried about my drinks. And then we got to a guy who was in investment banking he said, I'm here because my drinking isn't hectic, but I'm very ambitious. I want to be a CEO within five years. And I know that when I'm alcohol free, my sobriety gives me an edge and I want that edge to be permanent. I thought, wow, what smart person. Mm -hmm. yeah. And another investment banking story that I've got that I love is uh, a guy who's a friend now came to a workshop years ago in Joburg and he said, my trouble is I'm in investment banking and it's so deeply entrenched in the culture, the heavy drinking. I don't know how I can make a change. So I think I'll probably moderate and try to hide it all. A couple of days later, he contacted me and he said, I realize I can't moderate. What you're saying makes so much sense. I'm going to quit. But I'm still worried about the reaction of my colleagues. Then we got to know him better and we discovered that he actually runs a boutique investment bank, really small, 20 people. And interestingly, he was the boss. He'd set up this place and he had got a fridge in because he loved his booze and everybody had carte blanche to start drinking from the fridge at about 4pm every day. It turned out that he was setting the culture because when he plucked up his courage and he made up some story, said he's got a health problem and he's not going to drink for a couple of months, 
And the culture changed and he noticed it when he looked at his bar bill, at the corporate bar bill at the end of the month, and it was a fraction. And he realized that he'd been setting that culture and the other people thought, I better go and get a drink at four o'clock and sit and chat to him because that's what is expected of me. Amazing the power that people have, the senior people, just to start role modeling that it's not necessary. For the young people, obviously, they've got more sense than we had at their, their age. They're not drinking like we used to drink. And here in South Africa, Nikki, I discovered the other day that although we've got this reputation, haven't we, as a bit of a hard-drinking nation, two-thirds of South Africa don't drink at all. It's just these people that mm. do drink, and the binge drinking is rife, and the people that mm. do drink, many of them drink problematically. It's interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting st statistic. It's especially interesting to me, given how diverse our population is and the level of unemployment. We have a very unbalanced distribution of wealth. And I'm wondering what the connection there is between people who are earning a lot because they're employed, being able to afford to drink, but again, I think that's got a lot to do with socioeconomic situations too. And the stress. Yes, there's stress around poverty. But if you're in a high-powered job, there's a different kind of stress. So I suppose people are drinking for different reasons. You've opened a whole can of worms there for me. I can tell I'm going to be on a deep dive down into this stat. But Janet, I wanted to say there's something that came up for me around the idea of policy. I do love the idea of policy to protect the status quo, to make a bold statement about what is acceptable and what's not. But I am deeply concerned about how that sort of policy might perpetuate shame. Because if you are already someone whose drinking is out of control and who knows that they've got a problem, unless that strong policy statement is balanced by a very open door policy into HR and regular reminders that addiction is not a choice, it's not your fault, it's not a failure. In fact, I would almost say I would want to take it Yes, policy, but through the onboarding process, and I suppose I'm coming at this with my recruitment mind, when you have that individual face-to-face, one-on-one, and especially perhaps when it's coming to an office stage, to talk to that policy. You know, the, it's something that should, in my mind, be front and center to bringing someone on board to make it clear that we are all human. And especially the high performers, the perfectionists, the A-type personalities, to almost say you are statistically likely to get into a danger zone. This policy is here to keep you safe. If you find that you're bumping up against this policy the whole time, reach out. Because if it's not 
these if there aren't constant reminders i i worry that it would drive the drinking behavior underground and i know isabella i think you said something about moving mm. as a herd i mm. left the herd when i started realizing that i was in trouble because i knew that i wouldn't embarrass myself through falling over or throwing up or snogging someone in a dark corner well i did do that <laughs> but it was more the fact that i wouldn't remember what had happened and i didn't trust myself so i would leave the herd quite early and to all intents and purposes i looked like i was doing okay but i would go home and i would drink myself to oblivion when no one could see me and that's the nature of addiction it becomes more and more secretive so i guess for me thinking that everyone not just hr but that it's recognized in the same way that burnout is this link between alcohol stress and burnout that this is spoken about often yes that yeah. for me mm-hmm. would be wonderful yeah that that's a fantastic point nikki and again that's why i love these challenges because i think they'll start a dialogue from senior person to the most junior person and out of that dialogue can come some policies and of course the best way to make corporate policy is to involve the employees what policy do you think makes the most sense what policies do we need and then have working groups to produce those policies but yes talking to people at induction is a wonderful way back in my day when i was an hr director we used to have this employment assistance program so people knew that they could ring this number anonymously and talk about any issues confidential issues but there's shame around that isn't there because mm-hmm. they have to do it anonymously and it's something that can't mm-hmm. be talked talked about and i think the secret is to shine a light on this thing and bring it into the open and let's help people to ditch the shame so guys i'm going to have to wind this up now thank you so much it's been brilliant i'd love to make two comments just as my last words i really loved kath's comment just that it can be regarded as your superpower that gives you the edge in the workplace. And I was reminded this of a client who said that she could remember conversations at a Christmas party, she could network well, she had the edge and she can think clearly. Just the second thing, Nikki, yes, I agree. You've got to think really carefully how this policy is going to be delivered. So it's not forcing underground covert drinking, it's not delivering shame. So something that just offers self-guided, self-paced program that you can do at home, education that allows you to know what red flags are and how you can go about them. Because I didn't know. And then we all all know where that ended. Yeah. Education is everything, isn't it? I think the more that we understand how much harm alcohol does to our brains and our bodies, the less we want to touch the stuff. So education, yes. Catherine, last word for us. Last word. I I think it just comes down to being more holistic and seeing the whole human being in the workplace. There's so much spoken about mental health, yet alcohol, you're made to feel like you're not enough or ashamed if you've got an alcohol problem. So it would be amazing, I think, for corporate, for workplace, to see alcohol as another issue that they can really champion like mental health where they can really support people support their employees to be 
the best versions of themselves and that they offer employees education, counselling, an environment where they feel supported and that they can share. Absolutely. If there's corporate people listening to this that love the sound of your challenge, you're putting in with Isabella, how can they contact you guys? They can contact Isabella directly at Isabella at isabellaferguson.com.au and that's my website too, isabellaferguson.com.au. Yeah, or you can contact me, Catherine. My business is The Alcohol Mindset Coach. Of course, because you're a coach as well, as is Nikki. Let's have your details, Nikki. I just wanted to end with a quote from David Goggins because I'm looking at us four women and we have a gentle approach. And I think that sometimes male corporates can look at us and listen to us and roll their eyes. And it was absolutely delightful for me to hear that David Goggins, are you familiar with him? No. No. Okay. Who is this? Oh, my hat. Look him up. So he is making waves all over the world, but especially America. He's an American ultra marathon runner. He's an ex uh, seal. He is as tough as nails. And when it comes to not being apologetic about his life choices, he is such a wonderful example. His reason for not drinking, he says it masks who we are and it makes us weak. I just think that is so lovely for someone who is looking for an unapologetic reason as to why they don't want to have a beer or a whiskey or a vodka with the CEO. It masks who I am and it makes me weak. Wouldn't it be wonderful for us to own our choices? That sits so nicely with this giving you an edge, doesn't it? Absolutely. It's shifting it. It's a complete shift from it being a failing to a recognition that this is a choice. So my details are meta, M-E-T-A, 365.com. My email is Nikki, N-I-C-C-I, at meta, 365.com. That's my website as well. Thank you so much, ladies. Let's pull out some key points. We were discussing the prevalence of alcohol culture in corporate environments, including pressure to participate in after-work drinking events and networking activities which centred around alcohol. We shared personal anecdotes, highlighting the normalisation of excessive drinking in professional settings and its detrimental effects on mental health, self-esteem and productivity. These anecdotes included the story about going into the office after a couple of hours sleep, me getting a career tip from the boss to show my face in the BBC club more often, and my personal favourite from Nikki, the sandwich man coming round at 11am with his hangover cure snacks. We reflected how hangovers were often viewed as a badge of honour, especially among high-functioning individuals striving to prove their capabilities despite heavy drinking. And in spite of the fact that women cannot physically drink as much as the guys without seriously damaging their health, there was pressure to keep up with male counterparts in drinking culture to gain approval and fit into workplace environments. 
As high-functioning alcoholics, we convince ourselves to keep the show on the road at all costs. But in fact, there is a cost, a huge cost to our mental and physical health. And one of the many benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle is that we can redirect that energy towards positive endeavours. The good news is that we all have a sense of changing attitudes towards alcohol in the workplace as companies take more proactive measures in addressing alcohol-related issues amongst their employees. There's a shift towards promoting workplace wellness and inclusivity for non-drinkers. Initiatives like the 30-Day Workplace Wellness Challenge, which is run by Catherine and Isabella, it raises awareness about alcohol's impact at work. In fact, this 30-day wellness challenge is surfacing a much-needed dialogue about alcohol in corporates. We all agreed that there is a need for comprehensive alcohol policies in the workplace. And if these policies are carefully worded, produced in consultation with employees, they can help to bring about a gradual culture change. However, they must address the issue without shame Otherwise, the danger is that they'll just drive the drinking culture underground. Education is such a key tool in changing attitudes towards alcohol. If ambitious executives only realise that they could be 30% more effective if they ditch the booze, many of them would do it. We need to remember that even if alcohol doesn't destroy us, it will prevent us from reaching our potential. And most employees, and certainly all corporates, want people to be working at their full potential. The key is a recognition of sobriety as a strength rather than a weakness. I'll put the contact information for Isabella, Catherine and Nikki in the show notes. So if you're interested in bringing them into your corporate, please contact them directly. And if you'd like some personal support from Tribe Sober, then just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. Let me finish by reading out a couple of messages from our Breaking Free chat groups. We haven't even started our program yet, but the chatting has begun. Here's one from Yvonne. Even though this group is very new at the moment, I think I feel accountable to the people here, people who understand. I'm also beginning to feel that I matter and looking after me is important. I've seen psychologists in the past and heard all about the importance of self-care, but it just didn't stick without acknowledging and owning this aspect of my life, which I couldn't do with them. Absolutely, Yvonne. Often psychologists are reluctant to explore what can feel like the elephant in the room. You're drinking. And yes, that self-care thing is important. Nothing annoys me more than seeing wine promoted as a form of self-care for us ladies, when for some of us, it's the opposite. Here's one from another Breaking Free student, Lara. I must say, sometimes I think of myself as a professional day oneer. The last day one was on 12th of February, 2024. I'm adamant that this must be the last one, as I'm so fed up of being a day one pro and doing that hard stuff over and over. Let's just do this and help one another. That bloody wine which is such a menace for me. Sue gave me the good tip of doing this course material at Wine Witching Hour. 
helped a lot. Yes, Lara, let's make this your last day one. And that's a great tip you got from Sue. When the wine witch comes calling, just bat her away and get working on your breaking free course. So any last minute applications for breaking free, message me, Janet at tribesober.com. And that's it from me. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit, and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain, and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.